0: Oh, sh- Here There we go. There. Are we okay now? Not loud, Honey, when you put this thing in here, make sure that, uh, okay. There we are. All right. It's all showbiz in the yard. Why? Don't worry about it. It's okay. You know, speaking of showbiz, I'm in the dime store the other day. And uh, I don't know whether I am particularly sensitive to this type of thing or not. Uh, sometimes I think I am. But uh, <laughs> they had they had all these. <laughs> I, this is a little embarrassing to talk about. They had all these little plastic models of um, well, you know um, things like uh, monsters. You've seen them, of course. And among other plastic models, there was a whole bunch of them. They have them all packaged in little cellophane packages, little cardboard and all that, with little jazzy remarks written all of them. There is a plastic model of LBJ. And in exactly the same kind of box, with just exactly the same as a plastic model of soupy sales, (laughs) the alpha and the omega of the nuttiness of our time. (laughs) You know, I'm beginning to believe, really, seriously, that that 90% of our life is is under the control of and is really part of showbiz. And I think one of the reasons why so many people are mad with the way the world is going today is because in showbiz it never goes that way. No matter what kind of a, a problem or a tragedy is involved in a theatrical plot, it's always resolved at the end. You have noticed all the way, all the way back to Electra for crying out loud—it was resolved at the end. The whole kingdom came tumbling down. That's the end of it. Now, on the other hand. Uh, you no, know I, I really am serious. I think that our resolution hang-up is causing us a lot of problems. I think that almost everybody today under the age, seriously, under the age of 45, has been brought up in the age of showbiz. Showbiz, uber-alus. And, and, and we all know, did you, did you ever see The Longest Day? I saw that. I had no idea that that was a great, big, fantastic production. Uh, and, and General Eisenhower was that big old producer at Sheaf. Uh, in the sky there and uh, no seriously and you know, all the little yard birds and the pfc's and the corporals They were all little bit players and of course there were featured players like John Wayne and Van Johnson and all those Fabian and that crowd and it was all showbiz and did you notice it came out good in the end Oh, that? And they marched forward no problem uh, they didn't mention that there was a thing like the Battle of the Bulge was going to come and a few other big shots on the head. And, and the point, the point is though, I'm, I'm really, I'm quite serious about this. I wonder when some good sociologist, psychologist is going to write about. Have you noticed that that the dissatisfaction is much more rampant in America than it is in most other countries? And I think it's because we're more of a showpiece country than most other countries. And, and when you're a kid and you have lived only in the shadow of a television set, and, it, and everything works out one way or the other, and remember, it's not always happy, but it works out. Uh, in short, in the end of Willie Loman's uh, epic, uh, in the end of Death of a Salesman, it's done. They're planting little posies on Willie's grave, and that's the end of it. It's all over. And Biff was wandering off into the middle distance, and we know that the end, that Willie, it's resolved. Well, the trouble with life is that it isn't, and 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 I think a large numbers of people are getting that itch. Well, why don't they do something about it? They keep saying. So on the far right, you got guys. So I want to bomb them. ought to bomb them. Once you bomb them, then it's all over. Bomb them. He figures that once the planes fly over the right place, drop the right bombs, it's resolved because that's the way it is in the movies. You see twelve o'clock high. You see these big. B-17's going over, and you know that Hitler's getting it. That's the end of it. its resolved. Now, on the other hand, you have the other guys who say, well, get out, get out, pull out, because uh, that is an equally simple solution. It will all be resolved then. That's a resolution. <laughs> and I'm curious whether or not this comes about through uh, uh, overdoses mainlining showbiz. To the point where you, you figure that the reason that it is not coming out well, well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of fooling around, a lot of hassling back and forth, and the, the, the plot isn't working out the way it should, is because there's bad writers involved. Or bad actors, or both. And, and so it, it, it has to be the plot that is at fault. Uh, we're not getting the right thinking, and so on. And yet it never, never could occur to most people, seriously, that, that the, that there is no resolution in life. There's just none. None whatsoever. Have you ever known anybody's life who ended happily? No. <laughs> but have you noticed how many guys in 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 uh, or have you ever known anybody whose life ended tragically, a great tragic end of a life like Willie Loman? No, not really. Guys just sort of peter out at a certain point, and nobody cares. When, you know, it's not tragic or it's not uh, sublime. Nothing. He just that's it. You know. But, but, uh, this is the difference between life and the fictional concept of life, where at the end, when the guy's about to go, trumpets blow, and everybody, a great, you know, fantastic, uh, traumatic experience, he gives last words, all that stuff. Tell Amy that in spite of it all, I loved her. Bum, bum. And then he conveniently dies. He doesn't last for another seven weeks. Blabbing other stuff. Uh, Never. Uh, (laughs) It's the resolution. And the resolution is something that we're really having trouble with today. Uh, Especially when the plot is existentialistic. That is where you get into the sneaky problems. Uh, Existential in this sense that not clean cut. It's okay as long as you can have the simplistic plots of uh, Gary Cooper wandering down that dusty street we know he's a good guy there's no question about it and you are never shaded by any doubt that he may be a bootlegger in disguise who wants to kick out slag bartlett who is who is now running the town for his own nefarious practices that he wants to kick slag bartlett out because he wants to take over the territory never it's never clouded up with that it's good guy versus bad guy and, uh, this nice way to view the world. I wish I could, sir. <laughs> and you hear it, you, you hear it on all sides now. You do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm particular in the interview shows. You constantly hear interview shows, and you can always tell that whatever the guy believes in on an interview show, he is totally convinced the angels are on his side. And in fact, he is one of the angels. And, oh, all the way down the line. This, the unbelievably pious, uh, comments of the people who are who are totally convinced that America is completely wrong in, in, in the in the far east J- just wonderful. and and uh, I wish i could I could have that kind of sense of of a total belief in whatever I believe in <laughs> is totally right and wonderful and good and beautiful and and no questions asked or or answered on the other hand, you have the other side too they they're, they're every bit is bad I ought to put all them demonstrators and burn them up, that's why send them in the army, that's it, give them a plane throw or show them, yeah. and they're convinced totally of course that they're right and nowhere, nowhere does anyone concede that it could be one of those awful existentialistic plots the, that uh, Samuel Beckett dealt with that uh, there is no simple right nor simple wrong it's end game <laughs> and we're all involved in end game you know, it's something, sometimes you wonder—you you really do—you you just wonder where where uh, where fantasy stops and where reality begins, and where reality stops and fantasy begins, and where the dream lets off, and where where uh, you know it's just uh, its one of those—it's one of those. Uh, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why there's a certain kind of man, a certain kind of person, who is who is sort of uh, in a way abdicated from the abstract, the primitive. Uh, not necessarily primitive in their mind or in, in uh, their capabilities, but they have elected to be. They have opted for primitivism, and uh, when you opt for primitivism, you spend all of your time grinding the valves in your Ford, and <laughs> that's the end of it. Or you spend all the time fooling around with your hi-fi or you spend all of it all of your time doing the manchester guardian crossword puzzle you just completely have disappeared into that hazy nebulous world of uh, six letters at number forty seven across meaning bar sinister in ancient medieval tapestry uh... and, and so you you fade. and many guys have opted by the way for that kind of uh... that kind of primitivism in, in the intellectual sense. And so they've opted to become perennial uh, scholars, and they spend their time dealing with, 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 uh, with this kind of far, uh, just a, a far-removed, soft, easily controlled world of the argument as to what Beowulf really said, as opposed to what the legend holds that he said. What, who, who discovered Columbus's, uh, you know, that whole, oh wow, and I wish I had that kind of mind too, you know, I just, uh, sometimes I wish, uh, simplism is a, it can be very complex, uh, I, I, uh, you see, I was born in, in a family of shruggers. Uh seriously I, I I can't recall anybody uh, either on my mother or my father's side once saying what am stupid idiots why don't they realize of course I'll get them rascals out of the city hall I say this not once. I wish. Uh, maybe if had I had I lived in a house like that, I could without any question grab onto somebody's brass ring and get dragged along with it because you have to have that. I, I I'll never forget the day I'm sitting with this guy, this friend of mine, in a coffee shop, and uh, it was on the it was on the uh, the night of an election. And his eyes were shining with the, pollu- uh, the fantastically pure light. It was like, it was like suddenly uh, St. John had come over the horizon. Or who knows, you know, Richard the Lionhearted or somebody was hollering, Yeah, oh, let's go, you know. And he, he's looking, me. he's so the deli- I says, no, wait a minute now. Now, just a minute, Charlie. Now, now that's fine. Now, th- th- we've got to remember one thing. This guy is, well, I hate to say this, a human being. You know, <laughs> he is not going to pass miracles. I don't think he can walk on water yet. And I doubt very much whether he can wave his hands and the and the sheaves and the loaves and the fishes come down out of the clouds. It's not going to happen like that. And he looked at me and he says, that's the trouble. You're a cynic. Hey, speaking of cynics, uh, this is uh, W.O.R. AM and FM New York. Hit the button there. Bright, clear taste in beer. Miller highlights the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer: sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Miller highlights, brewed only in Milwaukee from a century-old recipe. Miller highlights has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequal, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in the familiar crystal clear bottle. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Holy smokes! What's this? Is this to be read live? One of these one uh, uh, of these uh, salesmen out here going to realize that I cannot read with a straight face a commercial for a Doris Day movie. What the devil? <laughs> well, all right, we'll, we'll plunge through it and do the best we can. Would you uh, tell that chick there to move out of the doorway there? No, move out of the doorway, baby. Do not disturb. That's the title of Doris Day's great new comedy. I'm quoting this exactly. It is the greatest day of them all. Doris plays an innocent. What else? Abroad. And that's where she's gone with her husband, played by Rod Taylor. They have a model marriage. What else? She's got the marriage, he's got the model. And if you know you're going stay, you'll know that means a lot of trouble for old Rod, of course. <laughs> and a lot of boffo laughs for you. <laughs> when you see the dazzling wardrobe she wears, you'll say, <laughs> it's a gorgeous day. When you see the hysterical things she does while she's wearing them, you'll say, it's a <laughs> hilarious day. When you see the fantastic color in cinemascope, you'll say, it's a glorious day. That's do not disturb a 20th century Fox motion picture that opens the door on some running, really, really funny shenanigans. They don't tell when it opens or anything. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't they'll, they'll blame me. They'll howl The shepherd didn't put the tag on it. There it is. I read the whole thing. Now I had to go wash my mouth out. Well, let's see. What else do we have? We have Rover here. 2000, the, the Rover. <laughs> let's get back into the clean world of engineering. Has Doris Day ever played anything but an innocent? You know? You wonder how she could be married all those years and not know about all those things. You know, you wonder how somebody should really, you know, the birds and the bees. Well, anyway, we've got uh, Rover 2000 here. It's a fine automobile. And uh, if you'd like to get a picture of it, we'd be delighted to send one to you. You know, I'm doing this on my own. And... uh Uh, it's not, you can't really say much about an automobile to people, except that I can tell you this, I've driven many foreign cars over the years, and have owned more than my share of them, and I've got the repair bills to prove it, but uh, the Rover 2000 is one of the most, seriously, one of the most pleasurable cars I know of today to drive, it's a beautiful machine, uh, superbly designed, and supremely comfortable, fast uh economical gets 30 32 miles the gallon and is built like a you know what yeah brick you know well it's a fine machine it's the Rover 2000 and if you'd like a picture of it we'll send it along to to you just send your name and address to Rover here at WOR New York okay all right now we're back here in reality now i i'm uh you know i i, I <laughs> I, <coughs> if you'll dig out that record in there, Bob, I don't know what you're itching about, but get get over here and get 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 get, get me my, my little thing up there. There's a little piece here that I pulled out of the paper. This is one of those sad little pieces. And uh and it's about it's about something that has to do with showbiz. Now we're we're all showbiz people here, and we're showbiz people in our world, let's let's face it. That uh whenever you whenever you stand up before thirty five people and you say, How many of you would like to be well, you can't say showbiz because they don't like that word. Uh, you say to them, how many of you would like to be in the arts? Twenty-eight of them, will, uh, their hands will go up. And uh, you ask them what kind of arts they'd like to be in, and it turns out they'd like to make commercials. <laughs> they'd like to model for hats. <laughs> they'd like to, you know, all this. Any, anything you want to do today is called art. So remember that uh, it's it's that's that's one of the great moments uh, of, of reality. When you walk through a Madison Avenue agency and they're drawing pictures of pickles and they're uh, they're taking pictures of Fords and they all call themselves creative artists. And uh, just it's, it has to fit. But I have a little note here from Nuremberg, Germany. Reminded me of something. Do you remember uh, do you remember? Uh, uh, who was it? Uh, James Thurber's great comment about the implausibility no, he didn't call it, was it the implausibility or the improbability? I believe it was the implausibility of animals. Was it improbability or implausibility? Implausibility. I think so. Well, this is a note from Nuremberg, Germany. The ancient art of flea training is dying out. Reports one of the last flea circus directors of West Germany Uh, Peter Mathis of Nuremberg. One of the reasons for this is the personal freshness of modern man, he claims. (laughs) Mathis, part-time ringmaster of a minuscule circus, but usually a mechanic, complains in common with most West German employers, he has an acute staff shortage. The personal shortage is one of my biggest problems. We can get no personnel. Modern living conditions and especially sleeping facilities are unbearable to fleas. You just cannot get fleas from private peoples anymore, only from scientific institutes. (laughs) Did you know that they used to get the best fleas off of their friends? I'm serious. This is a fact. The the, flea circus uh, did get its, its livestock from various people. The art of training fleas is at least 500 years old, according to Mathis, who says a medieval English monk was burned at the stake because he knew how to tame fleas, an art then considered black witchcraft. But because of the flea shortage, the day of the flea circus is nearly over. Mathis inherited the secrets of flea training from his uncle, who took his troop all over the world. His uncle presented shows to Queen Victoria, Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, and Pope Leo Thirteenth. On engaging a couple of dozen artists from a scientific institute that breeds fleas, he puts a minute thread around the neck of each one to prevent them from escaping. With the aid of warmth and light, Mathis trains his menagerie to perform great feats. Some can drag objects up to 300 grams in weight, draw tiny brass coaches, turn a carousel, while others juggle with tiny balls, which they can throw into the air at a distance of 8 inches. The star performer is Theodore M, a football player. Mathis reveals that one of the most important tricks of the flea circus trade is proper feeding of the fleas who give their best performance when supplied three times a day from fresh human blood. Mathis performers drink their fill for an hour on his arm, but they don't require much. I can nourish a hundred fleas with one drop of blood, he says. Well, now, the reason I am even, even uh, reading this thing is that I wonder how many of you have ever had anything to do... Uh, Kids. Now, this is a kid world, not an adult world. This is a kid thing. Uh, With getting hung up on bugs and insects as training them. Did I ever tell you about the, the big cockroach phase that I went through? I went through a cockroach hang up at one point. Now, I will tell you this immediately as I raise my hand, because there's a certain certain uh, onus <laughs> and, uh, connected with the cockroach, poor old cockroach. But there is a certain attitude towards the cockroach, and we did not have cockroaches in our house. We just did not. Uh, however, this friend of mine, Doppler, Doppler had this, uh, you know, you never know. It's funny, I don't think kids really realize when they're kids uh, anything about poverty or poor people. And when they read about poor people, they kind of think of an abstract poor people. They think of, uh, uh, little Nell, or they think, they think of an orphan Annie, or something like that, Annie Rooney. I I imagine even poor kids reading about poor people don't think they're poor people. They really don't, you know, they just, they, it's just not something you connect with. Well, well, Doppler, now that I realize that Doppler was, they were poor people. They had this old house, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's funny, when I was back home over, over, the, over the past weekend, I, I happened to bring up uh, the old neighborhood I was mentioning to somebody, and, and uh, one of the people in the family says, you remember the time that, that, uh, that the neighborhood got mad at your father and your mother? And I said, why? What do you mean? I didn't remember that. And he says, well, they got mad because they paid rent. That everybody in the neighborhood was really bugged because my father was the only guy in the whole neighborhood that had a job. And he paid the rent, and that was lousing enough for everybody else in the neighborhood who never paid rent. He was just completely busting up the whole scene around there and so uh, the the neighborhood they got so mad that uh, this is a story I heard, uh, and i don 't recall it this is just one of those things that was told to me by a relative over the weekend that that one Halloween, about twenty neighbors threw tomatoes all over our house because my father paid the rent. So so the 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 uh, you you don't recognize these things at the time and I and I I used to go to this kid's house and and the one thing I always remember about him and there was no there was no uh, social connotation uh, at all involved he smelled funny he smelled funny and that was it. He, he always smelled funny and he always, uh, every time I, I, I saw old Doppler, he just had a funny smell. And you uh, just accepted that as part of Doppler's personality, like his hair, uh, the fact that he only wore one shoe. Uh, this was all accepted as part, you know, kids accept each other just as on photo. And so Doppler smelled funny. And uh, I used to love to go to Doppler's house. Because Doppler's house was packed full from the top, absolutely from the top of the basement, the, the ceiling of the basement right to the floor, all the way to the back of the basement with junk. I mean impenetrable junk that they had collected. The the Doppler family was a, was an itinerant working up and down the alleys, poor, rag picking, junk picking family. And I didn't recognize that. all. it was fun. I'd go out with him, you know, I'd go out with his brothers and his father, and we'd go up and down the alleys with wagons and pick up junk and they'd bring it home. Well they had they had the basement, it was packed, it was like the Collier brothers. And it was just packed full of stuff, all kinds of junk. I mean, nothing to do with what they needed. They didn't sell it. They didn't uh, live off it. They just were like uh, well, human rats or rag pickers or something. And the basement was loaded with stuff. And they had tunnels, really, tunnels dug right through. It was like being in a mine. And you would go down wheels. They had wheels and old rusted bicycles and chains and tires and... Any millions of things you couldn't you just couldn't imagine old automobile engines and fenders and footballs and tires and fielders, mitts and any kind of junk they found they would bring home and put it in the basement and they had a tunnel going through to the furnace and that's how they would get to the furnace they had another tunnel going through to to the place where they would keep their 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 canned goods and that's it and the rest of the basement was packed full of this junk. Well, upstairs in their house, I remember absolutely like it was yesterday, in their house, the whole house smelled like Doppler. And everybody in the Doppler family, they were all jovial, there was about 19 kids, and there, there, were, there were about three fathers, and uh, the whole scene, a whole bunch of them there, and there, were, there was no furniture at all on the top of the house, none at all. They had a couple of barrels, they'd sit on barrels, they had, yeah, they had, they had, they had one enamel table. Uh, that kind of enamel table that's in the kitchen with all the chips on it. They had an enamel table right in the middle of the kitchen floor. They had a mattress in the next room, and the the floor was covered with newspapers, all over newspapers and stuff. And and I love this idea. It's a fantastic house. I just love this kind of house because you can do anything. You can get fly balls in it. You could, you could, uh, you could roller skate, yell, fight and holler and burn it down. Nobody cared. It's, it's a completely, a uh, completely freewheeling wild scene. And they, in the backyard, the whole backyard of their, their, their backyard was filled, completely filled with junk. Uh, old cars that they dragged, where they got them, they dragged them from the junk. They'd find a car in the, in the, in the dump. Old junky car, and they'd drag it home. they put it in their yard. Just kept it there. And so the junk drifted up to the back of their house like a drift of snow. Just drifted right up to the top. And and Mrs. Doppler, when we would... uh, I would go over there, me and Doppler and Schwartz and Flick, we'd go over to the Doppler house, and Mrs. Doppler, big fat lady and uh, she she always had her hair up in a net of these big nets big fat net and she would always make us what she called lard sandwiches we never got lard sandwiches at home and she would cut big chunks of this this bread they got from the relief it was real real uh, uh sort of rough bread the kind of brownish uh, scrubbly bread and she'd chop off big chunks and she would spread it with lard big thick lard she put salt and pepper on it and she would give them all of us lard sandwiches and that's what they ate, because Doppler was continuing he was breaking out on his breaking out, you know, he was breaking out all over the place. And we'd sit there and eat large sandwiches. And then uh we would we would wait, it would be getting darker. It would be getting a little dark there. And and one of the guys would go over by the would go over by the light switch and we'd wait. We'd wait in the dark, in the in the kitchen, pull down all the shades, and we'd close the doors, we'd wait in the kitchen. And on the wall of this kitchen, they had found somewhere, somebody found it in the junk and they cleaned it up and it was a little oil all over it. They had a clock. It was a big clock that was made in the shape of a, a kind of an egg, you know, the kind of kitchen clock, the cutie pie type clock that they sell at Sears, the little chicken or something. And this was this was like an egg and the top of the egg was supposed to be sort of breaking out and out of the top of this egg was a yellow head of a little chick. And sticking out of his belly were two little hands. And all around it were the, were the little numbers that looked like little Dutch windmills and junk, you know, that kind of a kitchen clock. And it was up on, up on the wall. It was the only piece of folk finery that, that they had in the Doppler house. And so we would sit in the kitchen, and you'd smell, you'd smell the Doppler house. It was like a big cake of yeast, the Doppler house. You could smell the basement. You could smell everything. And everything was permeated. It was not, it was not what the Life Boy soap company talked about. Now, get that straight. It was not that kind of smell, it was the smell of the whole life of the Dopplers, which meant uh, large sandwiches, which, which meant junk in the basement and old tires and all that stuff was fermenting together. And Doppler was living in the middle of this mince pie of existence. And so the whole family smelled like that. Irene Doppler and Harry Doppler, they all smelled exactly the same way, their clothes, everything. And so when Doppler would sit in, in fourth grade, you'd, you could smell Doppler's whole life. You're sitting there, you smell the tires, you smell the clock, you smell the cockroaches, you smell everything. Well, we would we would lock the doors, we'd close them all up there. We'd wait. We'd just sit there and wait. We'd whisper each other, okay? You, all, are you over by the door, Schwartz? Yeah, okay. Like, yeah, okay. And then you'd start hearing it. You'd hear the sound of a, of a minuscule, faint, the tiniest sound. It seemed to come from all over. Just stereophonic sound in the air. You'd hear the sound of, of almost, it was subliminal almost. It was so faint. Of millions of millions and millions of tiny scratches. You'd hear it. You'd just hear it. it. came out all over. Just hear it. And it would get louder and louder. We'd sit and wait. And over by the light switch would be flick. Get ready with that chase. That's it. Got the chase one up? Okay? Alright. Uh, over by the light stick there would be, would be flick, see? And you'd hear these scratches. And it would get louder and louder and louder and louder. And then doctor would say, Hey Schwartz, watch the door, okay? All right, Gene, you over there by the basement door. I'd say, Yeah, okay. All right, flick, all set, over there, flick. And flick would say, Okay, here goes. Pow! <laughs> and instantly, instantly, the light would flood on in the kitchen and all the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the table. Millions and millions, a great, fantastic, roaring, swirling blanket. An avalanche of cockroaches. Running, scurrying, flicking, and Schwartz and, and me and doppler. We're running around with our jars, stucking them in, sticking them in, one after the other. Millions of them, we're putting them in there. Come on, here they're coming. And they're all running towards the clock. All the cockroaches lived in the clock. They go whoa like a great big white tornado up towards the clock. and they're all gone well each one of us would, would, would hold up our jars <laughs> of cockroaches well now, now it's a funny thing we would do this for about three hours all of us just me and Schwartz and Flick and Brunner catching cockroaches now I don't know what Schwartz did with his cockroaches I don't know what Flick did with his cockroaches I do know what some of us did with our cockroaches. I'll tell you about the awful thing we used to do with the cockroaches. How 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 uh, we were all involved in, in electronics at that time. We were all playing around with little motors and stuff like that. And one day, Schwartz got the got the the stroke of genius. He took an a electric cord and plugged it into the, the light socket, and he had these two wires. And he says, okay, turn it on again. Turn it on. Let's go. Turn it on. And Schwartz is running around with the two wires, and he would put a cockroach. He would get the wire on one end of the cockroach and another wire on the other end of the cockroach. And boom. You never saw anything like the blue flame of an exploding cockroach in the Doppler kitchen. Well, that became our, oh, what an awful, when I think of it, what an awful sick sport. That became our secret sick sport. And all of us got ourselves a plug (laughs) and a wire... <laughs> and, and, and we had the two electrodes, and we used to run around. We had we, he, he had one of these three-way outlets. It was really funny when, when, when three or four of us would be running around with our wires, you know, with the outlets pulling back. Hey Schwartz, oh, what are you doing? And pow, you know, the outlet would pop, and everybody would yell, and the sound of exploding exp, a cockroach when you put hundred and ten across him, he gives it, he gives a satisfying. It sounds, I will tell you, it sounds a little bit like a twenty-two short cartridge going off. It has, it goes <coughs> sort of a like that. And he leaves a little blue, uh, just kind of a little ionized blue cockroach ghost going up into the air. (laughs) It's awful, terrible. Now, I'm sure a lot of kids listening are say, hey, you know, Charlie, that's not a bad idea. You got any cockroaches in your house, Charlie? Well, we we, we would catch them. So when we were tired of that, we would catch these cockroaches. And we became very kind of... uh, I hate to use such a word, but it was true. You become very affectionate to various types of big ones. You'd catch a really big one, you know, or you'd catch one that has a pretty color, or one that likes you. And uh, There were lazy ones, and there were there were, there were were excitable ones, and there were nervous cockroaches. They all have, they're, you know, they're alive. They have personality. And, and I began to collect this jar of cockroaches. Well, uh, <laughs> every night when I would leave... Uh, Doppler's house, I would take my jar of cockroaches and stick it inside of my lumberjack. I had on this jacket, scene and I would stick it inside my lumberjack, because I knew somehow, you know, you always do. I, I'm not a guy who really essentially believes in universal law. I can't explain it. I can't, you know. I, the, the universal law is something that that I question sometimes. But I suspect from the very beginning of the earliest caveman, he knew when he was doing something wrong. And he also knew when he wasn't doing something wrong. Now, it's not so easy to admit this, but we all do. I think even 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 the most amoral guy knows secretly that he's hunching a little bit, you know. he He's, he's, uh, he's cheating a little bit, and he knows it. Well, even at that age, I recognized, because we had never, the word, uh, well, cockroaches had never been mentioned in my house you know just never was talked about because we never had them that's all just one of those things it was just uh, it wasn't wasn't that we were we looked down i think we just never had cockroaches but somehow i secretly knew somehow that having a jar of cockroaches was not right especially since i kept them under my bed well i had a jar of cockroaches under my bed a big jar and I, every night maybe every other night Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and Doppler and I would go in and we 'd hunt cockroaches now we didn 't actually call them cockroaches we didn't like that that word we just used to say bugs we 're hunting bugs uh, we 're going over to get bugs or, or we're fighting the bugs and mrs mrs uh, it was funny Mrs. Doppler would come in in the middle of our cockroach safaris, and she would stand there, and she would say, come on now, would you like another sandwich? And she would make us another large, never complain, You know, to her, the cockroaches were as much a part of her life, seriously, as if we were catching air. Or, uh, you know, we were just walking around, picking up little pieces of stone, the sand, or just, you know, it's all natural part. And it never occurred, apparently, to Mrs. Doppler that we were catching their the cockroaches and yelling. And so every night, I would bring my little jar of cockroaches home. And I would hide it under the bed, way back in the corner, with the football and with the fielders mitt and the roller skates and all the junk that I kept under there. It was dust and grubbles. And, of course, being a kid, at that particular point, I was about 10 or 11, I had absolute orders. You know how a kid will leave absolute? Nobody is to ever mess around under the bed. Nobody. Now, don't mess around under the bed. Oh, my! don't. Now, come on. Look, my gee whiz. Wow. And so, they, they, you know, they, my, mother, my mother and my father, you know, the, the, the modern type parents, and they believed in, well, all right, now the kid must have his little privacy. He's got to have this little place that is inviolate. Oh, yeah, no, they, they, they did. They never messed around under, under, my, under my bed, except on one fantastic occasion when my mother found my collection of, of teeth under the bed. I used to go up and down the alley, and I remember standing back at this. We, we found this great dentist's office, and he would throw out these molars. And he would throw out all kinds of abscess teeth and all kinds of great stuff. And, and uh, Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and I would collect these. And I had a Prince Albert can full of the greatest teeth you ever saw in your life. I mean, all kinds of teeth. And I'll never forget the day my mother found that. Well, all right, I, I kept my bugs under there. Just a, just a, uh, just you know, just my collection. It was my bugs. And I had this big quart ball jar full of these bugs. Well. There was a big theological and scientific discussion one time between Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and Doppler and myself as to what you feed these bucks. We could not figure out what they ate at Doppler's house. So so we figured what we'd better do is give them crumbs. That's what they eat. And so every day I would take a little handful of bread that crumbs and I would throw the crumbs in there. I don't know whether they ever ate it or not, but I'd throw it in there. And the pile of cockroaches was getting bigger and bigger. And every time I would take them out in the dark, I would open the jar and <laughs> oh, boy, they're screaming like mad. I'd look in and holler at them. I'd drop more crumbs and I'd put the jar back on. And I had holes, you know, plugged all over the top, little holes so they could breathe. I had little pieces of grass in there. And I was growing this whole little world. And this went on for about one or maybe two months. Possibly two months. And one day I crawled under the bed to get my jar of cockroaches. And I'd scurry through the footballs and through the fielders' mitts and I get back near the near the leg of the of the bed there where all the dirt and the little grubbles and the little stuff, you know, the little cruddies that, that gathered under beds were given thick. And I reach and there's my jar, see? And I pull my jar out. And the top is off. The top is off. And there were two tiny little cockroaches that apparently had grown to love the ball jar and they couldn't bear to leave it. All the rest had split. Oh, gee whiz. gone! all my bugs are gone. Yeah, that's the only thing that occurred to me. Oh, gee whiz, crying out loud. So I take my top and my jar and I go over to Doppler's house that evening, and I just start to collect another collection. It never occurred to me, you know, i collect another collection. <laughs> oh, boy. And, and, and I start collecting these doggone things again. A couple of, couple of days go by, three or four days go by. And I come home from school one day, and my mother's on the phone. Oh, she's on the phone. And I can tell that angry voice, that angry, rotten voice in her, you know, that, that, that mother anger voice. And she's talking to my Aunt Glenn, and she's saying, yes. I have no idea. I, I can't understand it. Well, you know how clean I am, Glenn. I can't understand. The place is crawling with them. Well, I call. I called Mr. Schlichter. He was our landlord, by the way. And I told him he's going to have to get the exterminator out right away. Well, I don't know. It must have come back in the laundry or something. I have no idea. Well, it's disgusting. And she hangs up the phone. And you know, I what's, "What's the matter, ma? What what is it, ma?" Figure well, out know, what to exterminated. Well, you know what? What is the ma? And she says, this place is just crawling with cockroaches. This morning, they were coming out from under the bed. They were coming out from under the refrigerator. Look at the cockroaches. And do you know that for one solid year, don't you ever mention this ever if you go to Ham in Indiana, especially Hessville, for one solid year, my mother had a cross on her back that was 20 feet high and 40 feet across and weighed 17,000 pounds and it was made of cockroach. They had the exterminators, they sprayed, they threw out the mattresses, they burned my little brother, they did everything. They shot Roman candles into 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 the furnace, they did everything trying to get rid of those. And do you know that we had cockroaches till the day we moved out of that house? They just could not get rid of them. And my mother went out of her skull. And they never found out where they came from. (laughs) They never found out.